Hey, welcome back. So you can treat today's podcast as, as sort of a weekly wrap-up podcast. I want to cover precious metals. Uh, I want to cover, you know, to some extent, uh, stocks and, and, and whatnot on oil and, and just really the moves they've experienced in the last week or so, as well as just bring up some topics. Uh, of course, the Middle East, I'm sure, will come up and, and plenty of other things. But, but I want to jump into things and, and start off with precious metals because that is of course you know what the title of this is about now i see this as as a very positive end to the week for precious metals i forget i'm I'm assuming it is actually a positive move up although metals likely did move up somewhat you know last friday following uh the you know to trace things back the the initial thing that sparked this whole escalation with iran which is of course the the airstrike on on qasam soleimani uh, but where they're at right now, you know, last I checked, uh, silver uh, somewhat above $18 an ounce, gold above $15.50 in the, in the $15.60 range is is very positive. And I'll tell you why. Because, you know, following the the retaliation from Iran, which, you know, if you if you watch my, my previous podcast uh, talking about how it's not over, it's... It's not over. It was my last one, but the one prior. It's far from over. I'm sure more escalation, retaliation, whatever you want to call it, re-escalation, I heard that said today, that that's going to come back up. It's just a matter of how and when. And Okay. But markets, specifically the stock market and in oil markets, have basically entirely, it would seem, priced out any of the geopolitical risks that they had so briefly priced in earlier this week uh, following the Iranian retaliation. Basically priced out. I mean, am I wrong? I think stocks might have been down a bit today, but as a whole, uh, I believe still up on the week, uh, Dow Jones breached uh, 29,000 for the first time. I mean, it's continuing to melt up. And, and, and if you want more on that, uh, I, I suggest you watch yesterday's podcast talking about why you know, the, the stock market continues to in, incessantly uh, climb uh, despite bearish news, despite whatever. And it, well, a uh, spoiler alert, I mean, it really comes down to a combination of credit growth and, and liquidity. But, but anyways, the markets, as far as the stock market and, and, and oil market goes, it appears they've, they've priced out this geopolitical risk. And so why wouldn't the same be true for precious metals? Well, it doesn't necessarily have to be true for precious metals. Maybe it has, maybe it's not. But they did see a pretty significant correction uh, following their move up uh, in the case of gold above 1600 silver above 1870 uh, following the Iranian retaliation and and then they quickly gave all those back once they found out it's 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 over it's you know this the US is not going to be retaliating at least militarily right now and so we're almost back in in a similar position to I mean prior to to last Thursday's uh, airstrike in Soleimani Maybe there's still some pricing in, but but if the markets, uh, the stock market and the oil market tells us anything, it's it's not really being priced in a whole lot. And so, uh, again, I couldn't say if that's true for the gold and silver or not. But but what I'm saying here is that gold is currently just just below a key resistance point. Resistance point. I mean, silver. We'll talk about silver here in a minute. But but 1566 is kind of a key, you know, the 1560 range, a key resistance level, because that was the high that gold hit earlier, uh, well, I shouldn't say earlier this year, because it's 2020 now, but but in the middle of 2019, during the summer, around the 1560 range. 
And of course, yes, gold's been higher than that, but but that was that was headline based. That was based on on Iranian retaliation. And to see, so to see gold still knocking on the door of, of fifteen seventy is is very positive. And and it tells me that that gold and silver are still in a very bullish setup, despite the fact that they've given up and and their gains from earlier in the week uh, to some extent, and and seem to be paying attention to that a little bit less heading into the weekend. Uh, so that's a it's kind of a a big deal for precious metals. Now for silver, I mean it's again it's just above eighteen dollars an ounce last time I checked. Not. Not a huge move up. Not what some of us had had hoped for thus far. I mean, we're looking at 86 to 1, roughly, 86 to 1 ratio between gold and silver. Of course, that's going to close eventually. And it's still far below uh, its, its high, which was, what, probably 94 to 1 in uh, 2019, potentially, I think. Uh, so so it, it does have a lot of move to move downwards, I think. And again, that's going to happen. It's just a matter of when investors... And, and when traders wake up and realize uh, gold is, is in a pretty definitive bull market, which it is right now, but, but as it moves through more resistance levels, 1560 uh, uh, and 1570 and then, and then 1600, etc., that they're going to see that as very bullish. However, you're also going to see a lot of them realize that you know, relative to that, uh, silver is a, a pretty good value and that historically uh, silver... Silver tends to outperform gold in, in bull markets, and that ratio tends to come down. Just a matter of one, and, and I'll be honest, it's it's taken longer than I expected. Uh, is it market manipulation? I'm sure that that plays a role in it. Uh, but but again, it's it's going to happen uh, eventually, and it's going to come down in a big way. Uh, I, again, I mean, I think this bull market is just getting started. If you look at the factors fueling this bull market, to leave geopolitical risks aside for the moment, and, and look at, at monetary problems, uh, uh, the Federal Reserve, which which I'd love to talk about later on in this podcast, uh, uh, and, and their ongoing monetization of debt, uh, the current rate of inflation, uh, which is likely around 5%. Uh, of course, official government numbers are 1.6 to 2.2. Uh, if you look at the, the debt picture, the liabilities picture here in the United States and elsewhere around the world, I mean, it's it's... Well, first of all, uber bearish for for currencies and for fiat and, and bonds, and it's uber bullish for uh, precious metals. Now, that's not to say bonds are, are not automatically going to go lower. In fact, uh, they could go higher um, in terms of price and and lower in terms of yield. It's just uh, that's the way the market's sort of structured right now. That that safe haven bid and and uh, yeah, there's mania in the stock market or the bond market, which could get even more out of control before it ultimately pops but but all things considered i mean what was it russell napier uh who, who i oftentimes bring up and in, in his talk about how he sees you know a, a 60 uh, not a 60 a 30 year uh bull market in gold right so 30 years heck even 10 years we're only a couple of years into this if that depending on when you when you pick your start point if it's 2018, we're, we're like a year, not even a year and a half, maybe a year and a half. If you pick the bottom back in 2015 or 16, then there were a couple more years. But but still, this is a long ways to go. We're still going to see gold surpass 16, 18, 2,000, and beyond 3,000, 4,000, 6,000. Not at all to the question. And so, you know, 
we have a long ways to go for silver to to catch up and then outpace gold, which it will. And and, and of course, I think silver right now. I've said for a while that that gold is looking expensive, and, and silver looks pretty affordable still, well below twenty dollars still. So, so that's kind of my outlook for silver and gold relative to all this. A very good good week, you know, despite giving back some of their gains. Gold's, you know, not where it was at its peak. You know, sixteen uh, eleven, I think, uh, after their running retaliation, but still around that resistance level so so in a good position and, and and again this is sort of a without that iranian risk being priced in seemingly or, or underpriced in and so if we do see an escalation over the weekend or in the coming weeks that's bullish for gold but but i want to make myself clear that that the outlook for gold continues to look bullish regardless of of whatever's going on in the middle east so shifting gears you know i mentioned the federal reserve there and 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 that sparked uh, a, a memory i guess of a uh, an article I saw, a uh, headline, uh, from, from the Bank of America, talking about the Fed's current uh, quantitative easing program, which officially is $60 billion a month. So annualized, $60 billion a month times 12, $720 billion a month. However, according to the Bank of America, the Fed's current balance sheet expansion is over the last four months, more like on, on pace for 1.1, that's $1,100 billion, $1.1 trillion of expansion over the next year. Now, officially, according to the Fed, uh, the, the balance sheet expansion, at least in the form of QE, is supposed to end at the end of this quarter. But $1.1 million, trillion dollars of, of debt monetization meaning they're, they're buying that debt. Uh, they're, they're funding the U.S. government through newly printed dollars, $1.1 trillion. That's, that's huge. What, what that means, if, if we're talking about annualized $1.1 trillion over the last four months, that's pretty darn close to the actual U.S. deficit, which is probably higher annualized. But essentially what, what this is showing is that the Fed is monetizing the entire deficit like i I don't think i I can understate overstate whatever the the importance of that monetizing the entire deficit i mean i don't even know if the fed was able to fully do that during the great recession following the the huge ballooning of the deficit because of of uh lower tax refund uh, tax receipts and uh you know the bailout and and all of that, all those additional costs uh, that were in the hundreds of billions, if not trillions, during the Great Recession. I don't think they even monetize. I mean, they monetized like three trillion, three plus trillion dollars, following the uh, Great Recession or during and following. But it wasn't, you know, over that time span that the deficit probably increased by like, by the time they finished QE, probably increased by by five, six, seven trillion dollars, right? But now we're in a pace for, for a deficit of, of north of $1 trillion, officially, and unofficially actually much higher. Uh, officially, it's around a trillion. I don't know exactly what it'll end up with. It might be slightly under, but unofficially, well above a trillion. And the Fed is, over the last four months, on pace to monetize $1.1 trillion of that. They're funding the U.S. government. I mean, you know where that happens? I mean, that happens in places like Venezuela and, and Zimbabwe. And, and these third world countries or previously first world and now third world or second world and now third world countries that decided 
it'd be a great idea to to go off of any concrete monetary standard like the gold standard or something or even a dollar standard uh, in some cases and and wield the power of the printing presses why I mean for political gain for for short-term uh, uh, gains and sacrifice long-term sustainability but but that's what they did uh, and and what happened in Zimbabwe what's what's happening in Zimbabwe what's happening in Venezuela? What's happened in some of these other countries that decided to to use the printing presses to 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 satisfy their short-term goals? Well, it starts with an H, and, and I'll let you guys figure out uh, what the rest of that that word is. But but ultimately, it 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 went the way of of the Zimbabwe dollar, went the way of the Venezuelan bolivar. Uh, these these countries experienced periods of of hyperinflation, hardship because of money printing. Now, yes, it's more complicated than that. The U.S. dollar currently is the de facto global reserve currency. Okay. But that doesn't mean that somehow we're immune to that same fate. Right? And, and if nothing else, you can know that this, if, if we're not talking hyperinflation, at least is inevitably going to lead to inflation, which we already have 5, 4, 5, 6% uh, far larger than the officially reported number, uh, but but the last thing that inflation needs right now is monetization of debt and, and lower rates and whatnot. Uh, we're, we're talking inflation spiking to eight percent, ten percent, twelve percent. That is concerning, to say the least. So so I want to talk about that. I mean that's huge. Whether it's the the Bank of America figure, one point one trillion, or the official number from the Fed, if you just say $60 billion a month times 12, $720 billion a year. That's concerning. And I think it's really going to be a question of two things. Um, the Fed and the repo market, what the heck is going on there? Are they actually ever going to stop that? Probably not. I mean, as is the case, it's, it's a, what's it? They're hooked on a drug. The markets are hooked on a drug called liquidity, and they have been for many years. Well, they just got a larger dose, a bump. Of, up on their dose uh, with these repo market operations and, and lo and behold they're not willing to let go of that increased dose without withdrawals and, and that's not what the Fed wants right but the other question is of course their QE is, is the Fed actually going to stop QE at the end of quarter one I, I'll, I'll tell you now if, if they do expect pain in the markets pain that will resemble what happened in uh, the, the first quarter of 2018 not long after quantitative tightening started, uh, the the last quarter of 2018, following the Fed saying that you know Jerome Powell we're just below neutral, indicating future rate hikes, uh, as well as as the ongoing quantitative tightening that was occurring at that time, and, and the Fed basically saying it's on autopilot. Like what a what a stupid statement to make. I'm sorry. I mean I don't want to insult them, be too mean about this, but but that that was incredibly facetious or ignorant to say that somehow. Doing the opposite of what propped up markets for so many years is, is just on autopilot. It's not going to have any effect on the market. Was 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 a ridiculous belief to hold right back in 2018. And of course, it's same is true now. That that if what's holding up the markets now, quantitative easing and repo market operations, if that's all of a sudden removed, it's it's pretty stupid to say that there's not going to be disruption. Again, I'll I'll say it a hundred times until you guys all have it have it into our memory. And, and we can, uh, you know, dream about it, or we can tweet about it, or whatever. Today's stock market bubble, today's financial system, is nothing more than a product of 
liquidity, and credit growth. That's all it is, right? There's no fundamentals within that. Fundamentals play a very small role, it would seem, in this whole picture. I mean, just look at the stock price of Apple, of Microsoft, of of, of Tesla. I mean, it's, it's silly. So it's interesting, I guess. We can we can look forward to higher inflation in the future. Uh, moving on, though, let's let's talk about the Middle East. Uh, another podcast I recorded yesterday coming out tomorrow about that, and it's not so much a timely podcast. Spoiler alert: It's, it's titled "Can the U.S. and Global Economy?" Eh, I haven't decided if it's going to be U.S. or global economy, but but can it survive uh, a, a, a war with Iran? So stay tuned for that. But there's there's plenty to update about what's going on in Iran right now and in Iraq. And in fact, we'll start off with Iraq. Iraq, uh, their their parliament, of course, earlier this week, voted for the United States to. And I forget earlier this week over the weekend, voted to get to tell the U.S. Uh, get off my lawn, right? Get off my property. Uh, basically saying, look, we we don't want to house your forces anymore. And the U.S. and our typical democratic nature, because right, we're, we're pro democracy. We're pro things like parliament and 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 publicly uh, held elections and publicly uh, elected officials. Said no uh, to those publicly elected officials to that parliament uh, democratic process. We said no. We're, we're not getting off your lawn. Um, of course, Trump came up with this whole "we're not leaving until you pay for this base" talk, uh, but. But in real reality, the U.S. is basically saying, no, we have an unfinished business here. Not Iran, officially. Not Iranian militias, but but ISIS, which is active in the region and, and maybe controls small amounts of territory. Certainly nothing major in terms of, of territory. It's a shadow of its former self. Right? Uh, probably eventually going to devolve into something similar to... I don't know, like Al-Qaeda or something like that, where it's more widespread and not so much territory-based, which was one of the draws to, to ISIS initially. I think for a lot of terrorists that they're actually carving out a spot for them in the world and not just hiding in a mountainside or something like that. But, but I digress. Uh, that, that the U.S. has to stay there to, to fight ISIS, which is... Look, you can say that. Now, I would, I would counter with, with these two arguments, first of all, with a question. Uh, who created ISIS, and, and that invariably will lead you back to U.S. and our allies. Not that we, like, shipped a bunch of, of CIA spooks over there and, and that they helped, uh, you know, get get ISIS as well as other rebel organizations off the ground. No, I mean, that's probably exactly what happened. Um, ISIS is not aligned with the U.S. Uh, by any means, uh, very much anti-U.S., but, but there's a lot of evidence showing that they got their start with with some form of assistance from us, like like many rebel groups, many rebel group, groups that are are more closely aligned with Al Qaeda than they are with United States of America. So that's one. But but then the other one is is who has really done the best job of, of cleaning up this ISIS situation? U.S. I'll admit did a pretty decent job. Uh, but but look, there's other people there that can fight ISIS. Um, I mean, let's let's think about this for a second. You have Iraq, which, yes, I know is, is closely aligned with Iran, but there's more to the story. You have Iraq, you have Iraqi militias, which, again, are, are aligned with Iraq and, and, and Iran. Uh, you have Syria, which is closely aligned with who? Iran. You have Hezbollah. You have the Quds Force, Iranian Revolutionary Guard, part of, of Iran. 
uh, all of those forces are anti-ISIS. And don't let anyone tell you otherwise. I mean, and, and then you also have Russia, right? Throw them in the mix. All anti-ISIS. Right? I mean, there's this idea of Islamic terrorism being like this united front. But, but, but that's not at all the, tr- the, the case at all. Uh, if you want to call Iranian militias or proxies terrorists, fine. That's, there's some merit to that argument. I wouldn't entirely disagree at all. Right? However, there's a big difference between Iranian-backed proxies or terrorists or whatever and ISIS or, or Al-Qaeda or Al-Nusra Front. They are... On, on the opposite side of the spectrum in terms of, of ideology, uh, uh, theology. We're talking Sunnis and Shias for the most part. Uh, I mean, ISIS is not the best friends of Al-Qaeda, but, but they're more closely aligned than they are with Iran. I mean, Iran has, along with those other forces I mentioned there, fought back ISIS. They've done, a, I think, a pretty darn good job of it, as have the Russians. And that's not to discount the U.S. and our coalition's participation in it. We, we deliver plenty of bombs to ISIS as well. Uh, but but can can Iran and their allies and, and Russia and whatnot take care of, of ISIS? I think the answer at this point is yes. It's, it's in none of their interests to keep ISIS around. Honestly, it, you want to know whose interests it's in. It's, it's uh, probably in the best interests, geopolitically speaking, for the U.S. And I, I know you guys are going to say, what? No, the U.S. and, and other rebels backed by the U.S., in, in Syria and Iraq, uh, it's in their best interest to, to keep ISIS around. Why? Well, ISIS, if nothing else, at least fights the Assad regime, which is great for, for what's left of the rebels in, in Syria. Uh, but, but furthermore, uh, you also have, have that excuse that we started this whole conversation off with, that, well, ISIS is still there, so we, you know, it's our justification for 6,000 or whatever troops in Iraq. It's a bogus argument, but you know that's that's the U.S. I mean, it's pro democracy until we're not. Uh, parliament, publicly elected officials, told us to get out, and uh, and we're not. We're saying no, and and I get it. You can you can criticize Iraqi elections, but but you can also do the same to U.S. elections, right? So I don't know. It's a mess. It's unfortunate that the U.S. is going to be sticking around. Uh, ISIS is really nothing more than an afterthought. That's not the reason we're there. Uh, and this will continue to play out. Our U.S. forces in Iraq. Here's the concerning thing about it. Why are they there? Are they there as a force for good, as some would say? Are they there to stabilize the Iraqi government? Probably not. The Iraqi government wants them out. Um, are they there to fight Iranian-backed militias? I think we're getting closer to the answer. But But I have a sneaking... Suspicion, and maybe this is a little dark, but U.S. forces in Iraq, bases and our embassy and and whatever else, they 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 make pretty good bait. Just saying, it's a lot easier for Iranian-backed militia in Iraq, Iraqi militias, whatever you want to call it, militias aligned with Iran, to strike. U.S. forces when they're at a base or at an embassy than it is to strike a base in Kuwait or Bahrain. I think we have one there. Saudi Arabia, uh, maybe one of our, our aircraft carriers, something like that. Afghanistan base. No. It's a lot easier to do it when you have forces in that country. Furthermore, you're, you're also creating uh, sovereignty issues when, when you 
when you carry out a strike in Kuwait or, or Saudi Arabia or something like that. That that tends to probably make those countries pretty angry. I mean, I, but I, that's kind of my sneaking suspicion. And, and maybe I'm wrong, and maybe this is a little dark, but I, I think they're bait. I think the U.S. has them there. Yes, to have a foothold, and yes, we don't want to give up that territory, and yes, we want to keep those bases there, because if we were going to a major war with Iran, Syria, Hezbollah, etc., it's going to be nice to have those extra bases there. But those forces, when they are ultimately attacked, and they will be by Iranian-backed militia, they're going to serve as a great excuse to, I don't know, bomb the Revolutionary Guard in Syria or Iraq, to carry out airstrikes in Iran, to sink an Iranian ship, whatever it is. That's a pretty good excuse. So, maybe I'm wrong, but but that's what I see them as, bait, which is really unfortunate uh, for for American forces, and, and I could be wrong. It, this isn't me saying that the U.S. isn't fighting ISIS there. They are. But, but I don't think that's the primary reason we're there. I think this is this is bigger picture. This is still forward-looking uh, with a, a potential major conflict with Iran. So, so that's too bad. Uh, the final thing I wanted to talk about was was Boeing. Um, this is. I'll start off with this. Of course, the, the Max Eight, the seven thirty-seven Max Eight, uh, now a, a a very commonly known. I guess derivative of the 737 or, or type of 737, which famously was was uh, the the aircraft that crashed two separate times, and and then regulators found out that hey maybe it's not a, a safe plane. Well, starting out, I'll, I'll be honest. I gave Boeing the benefit of the doubt. I said to myself, and probably others, that you know what, like Boeing could have done some things better. They could have trained them better uh they could have put in a better system um to to prevent these situations where where planes just basically crash into the ground on on what autopilot or mcas or whatever yeah they screwed some of those things up but you know it's be a quick fix it's not in the court of public opinion that's not like be overly fearful about flying on these max eights in the future when they're ultimately uh you know retrofitted and then uh and then enter the fleet again and i'm going to go ahead and eat those words uh because we we have this new uh news today about these these uh i forget if they're leaked if they're part of the investigation these internal communications within boeing by boeing employees totally trashing the 737 max 8 saying that it's it's and and not so many words it's not safe how is the faa going to let us Get get away with this? Uh, I mean, the seven thirty seven Max Eight is. I mean, what was it ultimately designed to do? It was designed to do what a seven thirty seven does, but cheaper and, and more efficiently. But I mean, you've heard so many experts, so many people say now that look, it's <laughs> there's not enough power here. This is this is not a good design, and and of course there was uh, the other issues with with the. Uh, the autopilot or the MCAS or just the training of the pilots, but we're getting more and more reports basically saying that this is, what would one of them say, that, that a bunch of clowns being supervised by monkeys, that's basically who's working on the 737. It's unfortunate. I think it's really unfortunate that nobody stepped up, nobody had the integrity to say, look, this is extremely unethical. This is not safe. You know, whistleblower to the FAA, maybe they did. 
hey, maybe, how about let's consider this scenario. Maybe it's not just a Boeing that's that's uh, that screwed up here. Maybe the FAA screwed up too. I mean, maybe we, we find out in the coming months that the FAA actually knew that there's probably going to be some problems beforehand. And maybe some of that's public, but maybe it's going to become more more to the forefront of the media. And that they, uh, I don't want to say implicated in this, but they kind of, as an oversight, kind of screwed up too. And I mean, hey, ultimately it's the FAA's uh, job. Now, I, I get it. I'm, you, you know me. I'm libertarian-minded. Regulations, government agencies, whatever. But but in terms of the FAA, it is their job. And, and this is a great argument against um, government government agencies like this. It's their job to make sure this doesn't happen. And, and they failed because they, they were deceived by Boeing. Yeah, that's, that's bad on Boeing, but, but uh, what, what, what did George Bush say? Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice. Uh, yeah, and he didn't, I, think, I don't think he remembered the rest of the statement. But, uh, but come on, like, like, yes, Boeing clearly deceived the FAA. They, they pulled the wool over their eyes. But the FAA should be better at what they do and, and Boeing should certainly pay for this and, and 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 I think that's where the real story is I mean if, if we're talking about macroeconomics which is a lot of what I talk about on here and, and the uh, well, even GDP or the stock market I mean Boeing is a big part of that and if this keeps going on for any longer I mean Boeing has already basically stopped production of the Max 8s I expect eventually those airframes uh, they'll fly I I think they'll still fly. Maybe. I don't know. Maybe in the court of public opinion and these corporations, these airlines will just say, no way. Uh, we're going to, to Airbus or we're going to somebody else to, to make these. And, and that's where the real risk lays, lies, whatever. Uh, for Boeing, what what if they lose a, a huge market share for these, these what, short to medium range uh, uh, jets to... Again, yeah, Airbus or, or some other uh, manufacturer. It'd be a huge boon for, for Airbus, which is what France based. But but Boeing is a huge company, and you, uh, <laughs> if if they take a big hit in terms of stock price and in terms of profits and revenue, that's that's a big deal for the stock market, but the GDP as well. We're talking fractions of percentage points here when we're talking about Boeing. It's a it's a big corporation, so. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's all said and done. The government will put them on welfare. They'll buy some new uh, whatever fighter jets that Boeing makes. Uh, I think they make the B-52, but I don't think the U.S. is buying those anymore. But they make the, which is a bomber, of course. I'm not so naive to think it's a fighter. But they make the Boeing, probably the F-18. Eh, I forget who makes the 16. I think Lockheed Martin makes the 22 and the 35. But, you know, the government, I'm sure, will keep them afloat. They're probably not going to go completely, you know, if they're bankrupt at some point in the future, it's, they're going to be restructured. They'll stick around. But but still, wow, that's that's a big blow to, to their public perception. And then they apologize publicly, give them some credit there. But but it's too little, too late. I mean, that's, that's a culture of uh, whatever's cheapest, right? So Boeing can can fire those employees. They can discipline them. They can can apologize for their actions. But ultimately, it goes up to management. And and yes, their CEO has been fired. But I'm sure we haven't seen the end of, of them uh, cleaning house. So, anyways, I uh, that's all I have for you today. So I appreciate you guys tuning in to today's podcast on YouTube. 
uh, as well in the podcast world. Hey, my podcasts are doing great in the podcast realm. You guys keep coming over, or I'm just finding new podcast listeners. But, but seriously, uh, I'm seeing a huge bump in, in listens, which is what I've been trying to do for a couple weeks now. So, again, link below in the description if you want to follow me over in the podcast world uh, to, to Apple Podcasts as well as Spotify. But you can find me on most major platforms. I would appreciate that. Switching away from YouTube and listening to me on the podcast format. Let's let's ditch YouTube at least for my channel. And there's a ton of other great financial and precious metals podcasts out there. So. So check me out over in the podcast world uh, and, and be part of that movement. Make me one of the top podcasts on uh, Apple Podcast or, or Google Podcast or Spotify or whatever. Uh, you know, help me out there. Uh, we, we can uh, you know, strengthen numbers. So, so if you enjoyed this today, certainly leave me a review, comment, like, subscribe, whatever it is. Shoot me an email. As always, though, thank you from the bottom of my heart for tuning in to today's podcast and God bless.